Hello, we're back. And this time we have a special guest. This time, not because Will took off and decided to shirk his duties, but we have an awesome friend here. Please meet, for those that don't know him, Jason Chan. Jason is a legend in the business. He led the security program at Netflix for many years, and he's just an awesome person. We're very happy to have him here. Welcome, Jason. Thank you, Travis. Good to be with you. Good to see some old friends online. So first up, we have a discussion about the Circle CI incident. Basically, for anybody that wasn't familiar with what happened here, they had a security incident. They, they did a really good write-up on this. And uh, basically, an investigation found that malware got on was used to get into an engineering laptop that was used to steal a valid 2FA-backed SSO session. The malware, surprise, surprise, was not detected by AV. And unfortunately, the targeted employee had enough privileges to go into prod and generate access tokens as part of their regular duties. So the attackers got in December 19th and did recon, and then the exfiltration started December 22nd. Um, but the reason that I wanted to discuss this is because Jason had a very appropriate tweet, which is basically, not basically, in exact words, goodness, dev infra, e.g. Circle CI and Travis and identity infra, Okta and LastPass is critical infrastructure. These organizations really need to start operating as such if they want to be in these markets. I love it. Jason, explain. Sure. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I mean, incidents happen, right? We're not, we're not trying to be perfect, but I think there's a sort of difference between and and I would give Circle CI credit. I think their postmortem was 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 good. It was complete. Um, I think their communication during the incident was not great. And I think that's very similar to what I saw from Okta and LastPass over the last, I don't know, six to nine months. So, you know, I think we as procurers of, of sort of vendor software and, and infrastructure, like we're not, again, we're not looking for perfection, but we want competence and we want sort of, you know, we want the communication to be solid and we want to have like actionable guidance and we want to see those companies improve. So, uh, you know, I would expect, I would hope and expect Circle CI, you know, I, I like their learning. I would want them to drive them into sort of better operating practices because I think, you know, for better or worse, a lot of what security is these days, it's it's procuring, integrating, and operating a really large ecosystem, right? Whether it's, you know, cloud infrastructure, it's SaaS, it's, you know, even consultants and things like that. So that's just, you know, that's just the way business is done, right? So that's the way security teams need to operate. And part of what we need to be able to do as security teams is to be able to, you know, trust our, our key vendors and especially big ones like this. I mean, y'all know what happens in CI, right? I mean, CI reaches into everything. There's secrets flying everywhere. There is probably cars being started by, you know, CI jobs. There's, there's just everything. It's a kitchen sink. So, um, you know, we need to be able to rely on these providers. So, yeah, I mean, that was like, I, don't, I guess, I don't know if I was frustrated, but it was just, you know, you, you want to see, you know, these folks understanding the roles that they have in their customers' environments and taking that seriously when it comes to operating a security program and when it comes to managing security communications. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, one class of vendors that we haven't seen these kinds of issues for that also run critical infrastructure is the cloud providers. I'm not really aware of any of these kinds of disclosures from a major cloud provider. And I think that they must there's way more surface area and complexity in those products. They must be doing something differently. And to your point, I think anybody that wants to play in the space is going to have to start operating more that way. But who puts the pressure on them? Is it us as security professionals or leaders in the security space? Or is it governments? Like who owns pushing forward to, to better security within the global internet like ecosystem and infrastructure? Yeah, I think I think ultimately... Um, sort of money talks, right? And and to Anna's point, you know, one one vendor I've had issue with for many years is Microsoft, right? So you know, and I did a ton of work for Microsoft back in the trustworthy computing days, and they they've you know they kind of wrote the book on secure software development. But if you look, I mean, I don't know if y'all kept an eye on Azure in these last couple of years, but like the amount of sort of cross tenant issues they've had in RCEs, it's just mind boggling. And when you dig into some of these bugs, these are like I'm not going to say amateur hour type things, but they're like you know software that hasn't been up updated in four or five years. And I'm like, you know, this is just unacceptable. And then, you know, on the other hand, they're building like, you know, a $10 billion security business. We keep paying them. So, you know, I don't, I don't know that anything changes if customers don't, don't sort of inflict some pain on these vendors. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think we need to look for sort of alternative models, alternative models. We need to make sure we're putting pressure. We need to make sure that, you know, security has a seat at the table when, when these deals are being done, if we want to make progress. Here's another question. How do you actually vet that out? So, yeah, I, I agree. If you're going to be using critical infrastructure, 
then are they doing a serious job of security should be a major decision point. But how do you actually know? Like, you know, there's all of these kind of bogus compliance things where they're box checking exercises, you know, SOC 2 and whatever. But aside from that, how do you know if they're doing good security practice? Yeah, I think that's the million dollar question because I think, I mean, I wouldn't say like SOC 2 ISO is like purely performative, but it's, um, you know, I, I think generally like the ability to, from an external perspective, sort of evaluate another company's security posture, it's, it's problematic, right? And that's why I think I've never been a fan of like the security scorecards and the bit sites and things like that. I, I do think it's hard to do that. So I think it is kind of table stakes. Like you do need to have third-party attestations of your program and you need to have evidence, but that's kind of a starting point. So, you know, I think I think smart vendors will be going above and beyond because they're going to recognize that, you know, to enable, to do sales enablement, et cetera, you're going to need to have a, a reasonable story on security. I mean, I think if, if, I, if I were like a small security vendor, you know, I would be thinking about in terms of like, how do I help bridge that gap between what's available with say something like ISO or SOC 2. I'd be thinking about open source. I'd be thinking about like going to speak at conferences. I'd be thinking, you know, hack days, those kinds of things to sort of engage your community. I think those could be useful. And that's not necessarily speaking to say the CISO, but I think it's, you know, can kind of get out and become better known in the community. Jason, do you expect some of these critical uh, companies like Circle to have a decent-sized security team, CISO. Like, what what kind of expectations would you say we need to start having on some of these critical vendors? I think yeah, beyond I think like that... the SOC two, right? Because it seems like oh, well, this new C- Series A startup named Resourcely has a SOC two. Do we trust them? <laughs> yes, we <you> do. <laughs> no, I, I think that's a great question. Well, and so I, I guess I would kind of somewhat differentiate. So if I think about like Circle CI and kind of like dev infrastructure, um, I think they're going to increasingly because you know honestly I, I kind of view and I, I mean I'd be curious if, if you all share my opinion, but I, I kind of view like developer productivity and infrastructure and kind of like AppSec and product security. It's almost impossible to sort of disentangle those. They're they're very very closely related. So you know I would look at those vendors to be operating more. Um, but, but then I would think of, you know, if I think about like security infrastructure providers, like say Okta or LastPass, you know, HashiCorp, et cetera, you know, I, I would absolutely expect them to have CISOs and, and, you know, some pretty strong security teams because, you know, like it or not, I mean, well, I don't think we know like who the adversary was in the Circle CI um, incident, but I think, you know, if you look at SolarWinds, et cetera, like the, this is going to be an increasing pattern, right? Well, let me find, you know, some vendor that's got a bunch of ties into, you know, some really juicy targets and, and get leverage there. So, I mean, my view, like if you're a founder and you want to sort of be in that space, it's like, that's kind of a cost of doing business. Like you're going to be going against some pretty serious adversaries. So you're going to need to take security seriously. Yeah. I think one thing that I've been surprised is how few security questionnaires ask you to describe the size and structure of your security team. I think that that's actually a very, very good question to ask because you can rank it against the size of the company. It's like, sure, I wouldn't expect Resourcely to have you know a 10-person security team at a 15-person company. Like That would be ridiculous. But if you go to a vendor that you know seems pretty established, there's actually a surprising number of vendors that have like one person. And when you, or zero, sure. Yeah. One or zero. And if you get that, that's more important than probably any other question that you ask them or SOC 2 or whatever is just like, oh yeah, your security staffing is not in line with what I would expect for the type of data we're giving you access to plus the company size that you are. I like that. Yeah. The kind of thing that you can just add to a questionnaire and quickly tease out, are they taking it seriously or not? Yeah. But then you have all these companies just giving people like a security title and they are not actually caring about security. I do also, worry about because I agree that money money makes should make the decision drive the change here but I I do worry that we can't see the broad patterns that individualized customers of any given sort of infrastructure provider right I think that there has to be a broader conversation about all of these breaches and impacts where as an industry of experts we help drive that change and put some pressure on collectively as opposed to each individual buyer making that decision or trying to drive that change the other problem with this though is that these systems once you integrate with them are really hard to migrate from So you have Okta, now you decide that they're not doing a good job at security, let's say. What do you do? I mean, ripping that out and replacing it with anything else would be such a project. Same for a circle or anything else. So there is this like consumer lock-in thing where it's hard to get out of there, even if you decide that you'd rather have a company that takes security more seriously. Yeah, I might, um, if I were going to maybe like pivot slightly off of that, I agree. I think switching costs can be high, but but I think also, you know, one of the interesting things I found from 
um, Circle's initial communications where they kind of like had this hand waving, hey, customers, check your systems for unauthorized activity for the last two weeks. It's like, what, what the hell does that even mean? <laughs> um, but but I, I would say like, I mean, obviously I understand how CI works, but if I'm trying to like sort of understand how what Circle's environment looks like, I want to really, really understand the interface between my employees and the production environment. And I really want to understand like what does normal look like in my customer you know, segments? Because I think like they're going to need to be able to do like anomaly detection, those kinds of things. Because if I'm not mistaken, they were notified of the issue by a customer. Yep. And if I'm remembering correctly, I think Travis CI's issue from the last year or so, they were notified by GitHub. So this whole idea of like using your customers or vendors as like your intrusion detection, I think to me, that's like, we got to do better than that. You know, I mean, sure, we can't see everything, but like if, if I'm going to be creating critical critical infrastructure and running critical workloads for customers, I got to understand like what normal looks like. And I really, really need to have a really, really strong separation between what the employees are doing and what production, uh, what's happening in production. Yeah. I'll say too, you know, going back to the cloud providers, you know, I worked at a strong partner of a cloud provider and for any kind of access to production, you need to jump through so many hoops. There's like special machines and like all of this process to go through. And for dealing with that as a, as an engineer, it was awful, but this is the kind of thing that they're trying to prevent against. So there's some kind of balance between ease of engineering and then really segregating that production environment. And I think a lot of these companies, they want to move fast. They want to build features. They want to compete faster. But to, to really do this right requires a lot of onerous process. Do you think yep. that anything has changed in the last couple of years relating to the cost of defense versus the cost of, of exploit? Like I, maybe it's just some, some recency bias, but it does feel like we've had a lot of these in the last you know, year. And I'm just wondering if there's anything that y'all think has changed in terms of like, did the cost of defense raise fat, like get higher faster than anyone was expecting or no? I, my take is cost of defense has gone up a lot, especially the, I mean, I'm in renewals with a lot of vendors right now. And it's amazing how hard it is to predict growth within a, a you know, insert security vendor here. As well as like, once you get there, you're like, well, like more than doubled my contract value and yeah, whatnot. Um, especially during times like now where everyone's cutting, you know, tightening the belts, trying to figure out where can we you know, remain, where do we need to continue to grow? But I would say it's probably just, you know, with cloud, the uh, surface area is so much larger and you're needing like in vendors to see what you probably saw in the data center. And so you're, you know, it's not enough to buy vendor A. You need vendor A, B, and C plus open source D and F or something like that in order to get kind of that whole picture. Or you're going to accept risk that we can, you know, we have a visibility gap to here, or you know, we're going to be very reactive here if a customer complains or something like that. I have noticed maybe recency bias, but more of these attacks against these infrastructure providers. I think attackers are probably getting smart and realizing that if you go after one of these vendors, you can get a whole bunch of other companies from it, more solar wind style attacks. With the sort of fragmentation of the supply chain on the, on the sort of offensive side, if I think about, you know, now you can go sort of buy access to, you know, whatever company you want. Like, so if I think about if I, Hey, if I'm running an initial access broker service, then like absolutely like circle, like Octa, those are the ones I'm going to go after because they get you into, you know, so many places. I don't know if that's driving it, but that, that to me would make sense. But it, it wasn't so many years ago that I think there was statistics around, I think it was 30% of every breach was a security vendor or like a critical piece of security related infrastructure. And that doesn't even surprise me as per earlier conversation around like how many security people do you have as a security vendor? And I think we're seeing more and more success for a lot of these critical infrastructure companies. And with that comes an inherent risk that I don't think that they have prepared for. Yeah. I wonder if uh, there's more companies now that are becoming more critical and the time, like the time from day one of company to signing big, large customer is dictating that you must go buy all these solutions, which is raising the cost of defense where, you know, if you started earlier and took your time, you might've had a team that you could build some of these solutions yourselves or something that tackled it at the full picture of just what you needed, uh, which would, would be enough. But today, like your go-to-market strategy is like yesterday. And so you're having to go purchase these things in order to you know, kind of bridge the gap of where you are to where you need to be, or at least to get to like check the boxes so you can get those compliance needs with your zero size, zero person security team. Yep. 
Well, I think there, I think there's a lot here, but we've got uh, we've got some good news stuff, and I'm I'm curious for all of your takes on some of these things. So let's uh, let's wrap one one, yeah, go for one it. more question before we go. Yep. So I feel like you know five plus years ago there was this big shift of like, hey, let's let's use vendors for things rather than trying to run all these systems ourselves and like probably messing it up. Like let's have GitHub host our code versus like running our own code hosting. And a lot of companies like, you know, big banks and stuff, they're just like, no, nah, we're going to keep keep doing it ourselves. But do you think that maybe the vendors that are below that level do you, or companies that are below that level, do you think we maybe swung too far into the have other people run it? In like, general, I, I think for most companies, that's a good decision to make. You know, whatever you think about Okta's program, you're not going to build a better one yourself for sure. Um, actually... I did some interviews for companies that were trying to hire their first security person. And I'll always remember in one interview, somebody basically said, I said, what are you going to build? You know, you're, you're one person, like, what are you prioritizing? And they said, Oh, we're going to start off building identity because we can't trust Okta. I was like, okay, this is a, this is no a hire. Call. Yeah. <laughs> Not a good fit for a startup. Never roll think... your own IDP. <laughs> Never. Yeah. I do think we'll see more vendors like build kite where it's like a hybrid where you run some of it yourself and then there's like a control plane or something that's hosted by them. Like, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, I'd say there's probably that shift of size of company, trusting others to run it for you to size of customer or importance of customer needing to start switching to running things yourself. Yep. But I think we've, we've talked about like issues with decentralized hosting and that not necessarily then adhering to sort of security standards before, right? We, when we started talking about Mastodon as a replacement for Twitter, for example, that was one part of the conversation. So I, I do think that there is a cost to that sort of dual or hybrid model as well. I do think though that at the end of it, we just need to put a lot more pressure on these infrastructure providers, which I don't think that we have as much in the past five years, right? The switch to other providers for these core sort of operational things uh, happened without that necessary um, sort of security push, if that makes sense. Jason, final word? Yeah, no, I, I think just to sort of agree, agree with what Leaf was saying, I think I think it would be a mistake to sort of say, hey, I'm going to go back on-prem. I'm going to do it myself. In any dimension, right, there's always somebody who can do it better, right? There's always somebody faster, better looking, et cetera. So like you really, as a company, you really, really want to focus on what unique difference you, you bring. And it's going to be in a pretty narrow space. So you don't need to differentiate by running your own, you know, stuff that, you know, 15 other SaaS providers can give you. Yep. Makes sense. Okay. Moving on to cargo cult security. So this was a good write-up from Phil Venables. Basically, we have this idea of security theater that everyone talks about. Um, what he mentioned instead is that a lot of security stuff is more like a cargo cult. You know, so basically, you know, these folks in whenever they saw the plane land and then they they wanted to recreate those same conditions. I don't know the exact origin of it, but and then he talked about mimetic societies. Um, what was interesting about this to me is uh, mimetic societies are ones where leaders create rituals that mimic some aspects that they've observed have worked in the past, not because they think it's going to work, but because their followers expect it will work. And then he went and talked about how this applies to security. So a few of the favorites that really jumped out at me from this, uh, risk acceptance starts off as a useful behavior. But then over time, it becomes a bureaucratic step. He said, the time that you need to look at this is when people start saying things like, what do I need to record so I can move on from this risk? At that point, then it's lost its original value. And now it's just this checkbox exercise. Uh, certifications, he mentions that used to be, there's obviously these skills that are important to learn. This used to be a way to actually like structure, learn those skills. But now there's an entire industry that's grown around it. And then one final one that jumped out to me was security awareness training. There's a lot of bullshit checkboxing stuff that goes on here. You know, mandatory security training, people check out, they, they resent it, they don't learn anything. Uh, obviously, having every employee know some things is useful, but what it's become is pretty worthless. So curious about all of your take on this. I, I really liked this article. I thought it was incredibly well-written and I, I liked the examples. And I like that they took a pretty balanced approach in some cases. And instead of just being like, I don't know, password rules bad, they acknowledged that when these were created, it actually might've made sense based off of, you know, the storage techniques at the time relative to like the computing power and blah, 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 but things change and you need to to change the recommendations with it. So I, I thought this was a really solid article. Anybody that wants to check out the show notes, definitely give this one a read. 
Yeah, I, I agree. I think, you know, I, I generally recommend people read anything that Phil writes. He, he's just like really, really, um, he's just seen it all. Um, I would say I'd be remiss. I think if I didn't just mention, I think it's the, the phrasing like cargo cult, I think is a little bit problematic. Um, when I think about sort of, you know, taking a practice from like an indigenous or native culture and trying to like, you know, compare it to our world, you know, they have sort of different cosmologies and, and different worldviews. So I'm not a big fan of like that particular phrase, but I, I totally get what he was saying. Um, I mean, if I, if I were to think about like, or I guess one of the ways I always try to like maybe prevent this kind of thinking is like, I always think like there's, there's the control objective. Like, what are you actually trying to do? And I forget exactly how he said it in that article. And then, you know, what is the control? And I think we can, like, those can be independent, um, but the control objective is going to stay pretty consistent. And I think one of the things, or maybe a couple of things that have driven this kind of like, you know, over-focus is like the, the, the increasing specialization that we have in the field. So, you know, if I, I know he talked a bit about like third-party risk management and, you know, vendor questionnaires and stuff like that. It's like, well, if you tell somebody their job is third-party risk managed, well, they're going to third-party risk manage, right? And they're just going to keep kind of like turning that crank and they're going to keep dealing with the questionnaires. Um, so like, we need to be able to temper that and to be able to say, okay, this is enough. And then I think also like the industry, right? Is is I remember like when PCI really first started becoming a thing, um, you know, and, and as soon as like something made its way into PCI, like this whole market segment came about it. And then we just sort of like, I think WAF was a real big one or like file integrity monitoring, like these like sub industries got so much gas just from these sorts of things. And again, it's like, it's really driven by checkbox. You're sort of forgetting what the actual objective is and you're just focusing on the control. So, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I like the write up, but I thought, I thought it was helpful thinking just to kind of, you know, to sort of inventory what all you're doing and, and make sure it's actually still aligned with what you're actually trying to get done. I think at its core, I think a lot of the sort of ceremonial security practices are there to uplift those who don't necessarily know what they're doing. And so I think let's see it for what it is, similar to like compliance and other regulatory things. It's to get a baseline up to a certain level. But I think it's really important to evaluate your own environment and see that it's still relevant to you if you have the expertise. What are your, what are your favorites? What were, the, what were the examples that jumped out most at you? Say for me, that security training, it's just we go through the thing, it's required. We tell everyone we do it. Every single compliance thing basically asks, Are you doing it? But there's like very little value. And it's actually extremely costly to plan it, roll it out, the time you're taking from employees, the attention you're taking from them to apply to actual security stuff that you want them to do. I think one of the things that this isn't tied to a specific one, but I, I really liked what you said earlier about it's a really bad sign when somebody's like, how do we get through this as fast as possible? And I think that can actually apply to a lot of these. It's like that could re refer to a design review that could refer to a security awareness training. Like, I think you should really, really strongly question anything that your security team is asking people to do when the reaction by everyone else is, how do I get through this as fast as possible? Because that means that either it isn't providing value or you haven't done a good enough job convincing other people that the value is there. And it should probably be automated. One of my favorite things about working at Netflix was basically Jason encouraged us to not do this stuff. <laughs> like anything that was just sort of like checkboxy bullshit. He's like, why don't you just not do that? Um, I think it was the most like that environment that I've ever worked at where it's like, no, just spend your time doing things that are going to move the needle and don't worry about the traditional things that companies tell you you have to do. So thank you for creating that culture. It was a very fun place to work. Thank you. Yeah. I, I always would think about those kinds of things of like people don't get excited to go to work to check boxes, right? They, they want to do, you know, they, they want to express their creativity and sort of, um, you know, decision-making. So, uh, you know, sometimes like boxes need to be checked and I think that's okay. But to honest point, like around automation, you know, I think the one that really hit me like near and dear was access reviews, right? I remember, you know, being forced to do access reviews for socks and, you know, I would be given a list of like 800 names and be like, do these people need access? I'm like, how the hell do I know? <laughs> so, you know, so, but the, the problem is, is like, you have to sort of like, so I, maybe I have security expertise to evaluate that, but I don't have business context. And then the person, I went, one of the things I always remembered from talking to people like in the production space who, who, who were, who had questions about how do you get access to certain things is speed is important to them, right? They just want to get access. They don't care. Like, are we giving overprivileged access or, or is this access ever deprivation? 
like they're the ones closest to it to understand who needs access, but they have no, uh, no skin in the game from a security perspective to actually get it right. So I think, I think that's one of the interesting, um, you know, a, a problem to be solved around just general least privileged access reviews, um, you know, just in time. I think that's a really, really like fun and interesting space and identity to kind of keep exploring that. Awesome. Okay, let's move on. Uh, so next up, we have Will talking about a favorite topic here, paved roads. Paved roads. My, I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, so paved roads. Yeah, so a new library in Go was released, uh, which, you know, I think well, I, I still remember setting off in like my application security days and thinking like one of the coolest things that would be to, as a like product security or application security engineers, like completely mitigate uh, a class of vulnerability across the company, right? And I think we've seen Google try to do this in a lot of areas by writing libraries and putting the checks in place and saying, look, you want to ship code fast, use this library, and then you don't have to go through all these checks. But if you don't, then we've got all these like review points, right? And that's where I think, I assume Netflix coined the paved road path terminology. It's it's always fun to say, well, you, hey, do you want to go down the paved road or do you want to go mountain biking? Which was not a good thing to use back then because everyone at Netflix loved to mountain bike personally, right? So they're like, oh, I like to mountain bike on the side. Maybe we just mountain bike, but... Um, not in software engineering. Yeah, not in software engineering for sure. Um but yeah, so a new package for Go was released called Safe URL. It was put out by Alessandro Cotto and Victor Chuchersky. Apologies if I said last names incorrectly, but really kind of cool to see another library out there to try to prevent a class of vulnerability that plagues us in the cloud, especially. If you remember last episode, we talked about top cloud hacks, SSRF obviously being one close to my heart with some work that I've done in the past, but... I think even with these types of libraries, it's going to be really hard without a recommended best practice on what's the right configuration and default config. Every environment is going to be different, but it is nice that it's a dropping replacement for the net HTTP Golang embedded, uh, you know, standard library web client. So uh, it gives you a lot of great configuration abilities, allowed ports, blocked IPs, allowed IPs, allowed ciders, blocked ciders, IPv6 enabled, supposed to prevent against uh, DNS rebinding, which is quite a popular one. And especially when you're seeing probing for like metadata uh, URL within AWS and other cloud providers. Uh, So quite powerful. I didn't get a chance to actually play with it, but I did look through the, the page and it Seems pretty simple to use, you know, like they said, the drop-in replacement. So, you know, I think overall, this is the path towards you know, better default security, make it easier for folks. I always love the building block approach that we took where, you know, give someone a, a building block that they can just turn on and it takes care of things for them. And I think this is a perfect example of that, right? You know, working at a, a, a SaaS company now, I guess, with HashiCorp, you know, anywhere that you're taking customer input that's directing network traffic is just plagued with SSRF. It doesn't matter how, how much URL encoding and, and checks that you're doing, you're always going to run some sort of proxy or something. And so getting something like this, I was excited and thinking like, ooh, where could we drop this in our products to make it even easier for our customers to not fall into these misconfigurations and things. So I was super excited. I'm, I'm hoping to give it a, a go at some point, but no pun intended. Literal go. Go lang. But yeah, safe <laughs> safe URL. Uh really, really cool work. And I, you know, uh, I really hope that more libraries like this come out. Um, because it just makes it easier for those developers to, you know, to do the right thing. You know, to to the previous article point of like training Travis, right? And I think in the in the article he talks about, you know, security awareness training versus just doing, you know, having things in the IDE to make it easier for things, right? It's just this is the, that one step towards that better future for devs. This reminds me of the Python library. There's basically like something that you could do that if you if you ran it, it would cause like a logic bomb. And they basically just removed all of that. I don't remember what the exact Python library was, but yeah, a drop-in replacement that when you're doing something, it makes it safe. Like this is a no-brainer. Uh, what I'd love to see then on top of this is if organizations basically like built out linting rules where it's like, if you're using the unsafe library, then we're going to auto-replace with the safe one. Wasn't Python like... It wasn't one of the uh, XML libraries, like just XML. That's it. With. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Leaf, isn't it very, this very similar to what you all did with Evergreen? Yeah. This is um, pretty similar to something that we, it, the one for Evergreen was a little bit more specialized because we were just trying to prevent like JavaScript hrefs in our front end React code. But yeah, we just made it 
default in our design component system where you actually had to say like, Hey, I want to go mountain biking and nobody has done that because there's no reason to use JavaScript hrefs. But yeah, this is is pretty similar. Although I think this one is probably more complicated than than what we did. I think, um, Travis, you made a really good point there too, about like, so if you're in a organization that's institutionalized, this kind of choice, your your then your static analysis actually becomes much more higher fidelity, right? Because you're not actually trying to like suss out, well, you know, where where could SSRF happen? You're just looking for who's not using the sort of right thing. And so it sort of like pays off in 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 a bunch of different ways. So yeah, I, I totally agree. This is totally the right way for languages to be going and for teams to be going. And then you make it the default and you can give someone the option to opt out, but overwhelmingly people do not change defaults. So can still give the illusion of choice without having to actually have people use the bad thing. Yeah. And I think to, to Will's earlier point when he was describing the functionality, I think one place where designers can look for, because I think part of the problem is like you still have a bunch of configs and, you know, allow lists and, and, and block lists. It's like, we, we need to find ways to like, just make that simpler, like just do the right thing. Like, I don't want to have to have a config file and, you know, 16 other things to go right. It just kind of explodes the complexity in the options. And then also the checking and validation. So the more that we can just be like, if this is there, then just don't worry. Then I think that's kind of where, um, that's kind of a holy grail. I wanted to give Dwayne sec, just like a quick shout to like, we've used them for some pen tests. They're really solid. And we first heard about them because they published some GraphQL tooling. And this was a few years ago. And we had other places be like, yeah, we just don't even know what that is. And so that kind of drove us towards join insect. So this, this kind of open source work actually does translate to consulting dollars. Yep. Yeah, I actually met uh, Luca, who's, uh, I think he is the Doyensec co-founder. We uh, co-taught a free uh, web app security class at uh, Hackerspace, I think at Mountain View, probably like 15 years ago. But yeah, I agree. Totally agree. I think people need to be out there supporting the community, you know, doing open source, that kind of thing, information sharing. Awesome. Speaking of information and open source, Leaf, keys and PyPy. Yeah, this is, I think, the wrong kind of open source. You, you don't want the AWS keys to be open source. Um, this was a, a really solid write-up. Um, the author, Tom, found keys from some pretty big names. Uh, there was Intel, Amazon, ironically, some, some big universities. And I like that they went through their detection strategy. They also have set up GitHub, a- GitHub Actions to scan new packages. I was also, I guess, kind of surprised, but also not that they found a key that's still active that got uploaded 10 years ago. Like, I wonder how many other people have found that that key previously. It's got to be quite a few. And I also like Tom's closing thoughts uh, about Python publishing tooling, maybe doing a quick scan for some of this stuff. Maybe you run it through the open source truffle, truffle hog or whatever, and prompt the person, hey, are you sure you want to upload this to PyPy? It has your AWS key in it. I think that would be a really sane check to to do. And it kind of got me thinking, like, I wonder if this is something that we'll see package repos start to do. Like I could see NPM, which is owned by GitHub, do this kind of scan. Like we saw them take steps to make uh, publishers turn on MFA. It feels reasonable that if they see that the link is hosted on GitHub, they would use the GitHub security scanner to say, hey, package person, uh, there's a, an AWS key in this thing that you just uploaded. Like, that's not good. You need to take some steps to have that not be the case. So I, I wonder if we'll see package managers make any moves here. Yeah, I hope we see something, but my my guess is the reality is we won't, except for maybe NPM with like an actual, if I, if I remember at a company like behind it, trying to make something out of it. But like, isn't PyPy partially funded just by a big tech company who hires the PyPy maintainer to to say, hey, you can dedicate 80% of your time towards maintaining PyPy because we feel it's important. Yep. Yeah. Donald Stuffed. He's a vigilant soul and he does all the PyPy work uh, basically in addition to his full-time job. So it's a, I mean, it's, you're, you're asking, you know, a group of in people to do something on their free time uh, in order to implement these like cool features, which uh, you know should be there, I think, or I don't know, maybe next big startup needs to innovate in this space or something. Somebody should productize this. It's basically, we're going to have a very available, secure, whatever, like package manager that does all of this stuff and companies should pay for it. There's no reason that, you know, it reminds me of that old, whatever graphic where you have the whole modern infrastructure and then that little like flimsy building block. It's always that. <laughs> that was a log for Jay, I think. It was log for Jay, yeah. 
I think it's like time also. I read an article one time about some guy that was maintaining like something related to time, basically just selfishly for whatever years. And then he got sick and died and he was worried that no one was going to pick it up. Messy Infra. All right, Leaf, you got the next one. Speaking of Messy Infra. Yeah, this one's about web hackers versus the auto industry. This, again, very solid write-up. I thought they did a good job of outlining what they found at the top. They made it really easy to scroll through and just kind of look at whatever you wanted. Hard ones are super scary. I mean, it's one thing when some like IoT stuff gets hacked and like that's not good either, but they had the ability to lock and unlock cars, stop and start the engine. I, I couldn't really, and it was pretty easy. It was like based off the VIN or the email. Obviously, there's a pretty strong like theft use case here. I couldn't tell if you were able to turn the engine like off while it was driving. I didn't see anything that was related to braking, acceleration, or steering, which is good. But this must have been at least like six years ago because I was still working at Bug Crowd. But I remember when Charlie Miller and Chris uh, Vlasic were able to engage the e-brake on their Jeep at highway speeds. And so this stuff has a very real world impact on people's lives. Uh, and and safety. Yeah, and, and having worked with them, and also having worked at a car uh, company in a security function, um, I do think that as a broad industry, them having adjusted towards sort of internet connectivity, similarly to how you see IoT and a lot of stuff, they're just not up to par with security standards. And I don't think that there is necessarily a broad sort of industry standard for what auto industry security should look like. I think that that is changing and has been changing, especially around sort of the um, self-driving car initiatives, right? Because they have a lot more focus on upping security for other reasons than just sort of the car control in itself. But I, I, it does worry me. But the reading this, I was not particularly surprised, uh, which is also quite saddening. Yeah, this is another category of infrastructure where, hey, like if my credit card gets compromised, who gives a shit? You just like rotate it and get another one. I don't even care. But this kind of stuff, like things about your car, particularly, yeah, hopefully you can't stop the car when it's moving, but locking somebody out in the wrong place or using surveillance features on the on the car. Like in one case, they mentioned like a 360 camera view. Like that stuff is really important. And I think consumers don't expect all of that. So I, I would love to see car makers do better here. You think we'll see something that's akin to the crash test ratings? Like I know that that isn't like an, a totally fair translation of real world like crash data, but do you think we'll see something where it's like, hey, you need to be able to demonstrate that all this, all these crazy scenarios are not possible on your your vehicle? Like it's kind of like proving a negative, but like, do you think that we'll see anything like that? I, I, I think that there is going to be a lot more standards. Uh, however, there is a huge issue right, with uh, maintainability and updatability of uh, user-owned cars, right? If you launch a car and you sell it to a person out in the wild, they're not, you're, you can't ensure that they're going to keep that patched and updated, right? You can't ensure that they're not going to take it on the road. And I think part of that is communicating the risk to them as end users if they don't. But at the same time, it's it's a very complicated problem because you can't control versioning. Yeah, I would, I would say to that point, you know, if anything like a crash rating, it'd be like, what extra levels of certification have we gone through, which ultimately is going to unfortunately end up to be in the same vein, I think it's like, oh, we have our SOC 2, ISO 27001 or whatever. But it's it's one of those things like your, your company is secure today because no one's found the hole tomorrow. And so uh, that would be my only fear is automakers are going to be hesitant to, to you know plaster any sort of advertisement. They're like, oh, we're, you know, we're hack-proof stage four because we ran these tests or something, right? <laughs> It's going to be some sort of compliance thing. They're like, oh, you know, we're part of the consortium that of automakers that have all come together to, to ensure that all of our cars have over-the-air upgrades and there's are secure and and on. Ultimately, at some point, it's going to be like we're, we're probably going to think it's really great at the beginning, and then over the 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 years to come, it's going to be like, meh, maybe it wasn't so great. I think that's a really good callback though to the ceremonial security article because the author of that starts with acknowledging like, hey, when we created a lot of these compliance things, we needed a baseline to tell people what something reasonably okay looks like. And, you know, based off of some of the comments here, it feels like we're maybe below that level. And so we might actually have an opportunity to get people above the area that they're at by saying like, Hey, you need to have these things. And like, yes, it probably will get outdated. And like, yes, it'll probably be mismarketed, but like maybe we're at the point where it actually would be some 
escalation of minimum security functionality. Yeah. And I think given that it is such a direct impact to people's own safety and security, I think you will see a lot more movement there than you do when things are more esoteric to people. Yeah. I, I hate to say it, but as I was reading this, I was thinking like, oh, I really want a standard or some like compliance thing. Like, it's the worst solution and it yields like bad outcomes, but it's definitely better than nothing. Some of these things are really low hanging fruit that you would hope somebody's looked at more. There's no way to assert, you know, I'm at least trying to run a secure vehicle program. Okay. Uh, moving on. Anna, you're up. All right. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit about NSO. Um, Meta and WhatsApp has been attempting to uh, sue a malware developer, NSO Group, for a while. Uh, it started back in 2019 when uh, NSO had been caught for trying to use their Pegasus spyware to uh, sort of uh, spy with, spy on uh, 1,400 of WhatsApp's users. Uh, and for those who are not aware, uh, NSO Group is mostly a spyware company or like a cyber intelligence company that has been operating out of Israel for the better part of the last 10 years. Uh, NSO has been on the entity list for acting against uh, U.S. national security and foreign foreign policy interests since November in 2021, which I think was because of an Apple lawsuit, not this related to Meta. Uh, but that means that there are active sanctions against the company and its uh, suppliers. Since then, NSO has filed several appeals and it's been rejected twice by the lower courts, but now their claims have been rejected by the U.S. Supreme Court. So um, NSO has attempted to claim immunity uh, from these lawsuits by stating that they're acting as an agent of a foreign government. Uh, and the court has stated that this type of immunity protection will not uh, extend to private companies. And so NSO has long-term claimed that their malware is strictly for fighting, fighting crime and terror. But since this has been made public and throughout the years, there has been a lot of reports on targets against human rights defenders, journalists, other civilians, and including allegations around them having a role in Jamal Khashoggi's murder, her the Saudis last year, two years ago. And I think there's a ton of things that are really interesting here. But um, what was also highlighted in one of the articles that we were linking out is that the impact of or effectiveness between in driving change in malware developers or the spyware sort of industry between like lawsuits and sanctions, where lawsuits largely end up being not very impactful and sanctions having an immediate effect on some of these malware developers. Yeah. I mean, we've heard a lot of stuff like this about NSO. I just, I don't see how they could think that I was acting as an agent of a foreign government would be some viable way for a private company to get out of some kind of sanctions. <laughs> it doesn't seem like it's likely to work. I mean, my counter to that would be, it did kind of work because it delayed things for two years before the actual sanctions hit. So it, it did tie things up in the court, which maybe helped them for that intermediate period. I mean, is is hacking for a business like should this be allowed? Is this the kind of thing that you can use and just say, oh, we're to fight terror and you kind of get yourself out of responsibility for however it's used? I would say no. Like that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I think largely these kinds of limitations almost doesn't make sense even on a governmental level. Here's a counterpoint, though. So there's obviously hacking tools, open source do those have the same problem? Okay, so you have NSO, they're selling tools, then you have open source tools. If Does the open source maintainer, are they responsible for the use of their tools? Like, where's the line there? I, mean, I think I've seen, or haven't there been times where someone wrote a piece of software that was like a rat and then was being used as part of a malware campaign or something and the developer actually was held responsible for it because of basically just shouldn't have released that code or something? I feel like as a open source developer, you have to like put so many disclaimers in your code base of like, I'm not responsible for how this is used. And I remember back when I first moved to the Bay area, I remember specifically as Cloudflare because everyone was like, Oh, put your stuff behind Cloudflare and you can hide your host. And I was like, Oh, this seems like a pretty easy problem to solve as far as like just scan the, the internet and actually just do some kind of matching. But I started thinking about like, if I write the code, if I open source it, if I just start scanning the internet, like how much trouble do you actually get into when you start probing into these places that you know someone is going to get mad that you are malware tech is it malware tech Mar marcus hutchins like some of his original software you know albeit if he wrote it for malicious or, or not in the beginning like used for bad things like came back to haunt him right but also used for good things yes definitely definitely good but uh, it's almost to the, like the, the the one good thing in his case like was the thing that <laughs> made the bad things come out right like Unfortunately, no good deed, no good deed goes unpunished, I guess in that case. No, but I think I think it's still interesting um 
like what 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 the boundaries between say and i think the malware development space is overly complicated in that way right i think as an industry we still haven't really decided how we how we feel about it so i'm curious about everyone's opinion on two things one do you think that open source hacking tools should be restricted and two if you have a private company that does the same thing as the open source hacking tools should they be held responsible for them? I, if I am, I'm just going to go first. Uh, one, I don't think that they should be restricted to, I think that you are, if you're generating profit from applying expertise and these tool in a particular environment that's targeted against a specific group. Yes. I do think that that should be governed in some way, or at least there should be some level of restriction, but not onto the tool itself. Yeah, I would agree with, I agree with that. I think, um, even if I remember, you know, having spent many years in offensive security and doing like pen testing, there was so much hold harmless indemnity you need to have just for that kind of work. So you got to be careful if you're going to try to make money off of something like that. But yeah, I, I think the only way we sort of get better is if people are, you know, building open source and are talking about it and being transparent and clear. I don't think, I don't think the industry gains by, by hiding that or sort of taking that off. Mark. Right. I was going to say, I was just going to mention Cobalt Strike and Raphael, like it's, the basis of commodity ransomware and, you know, what is it, Clop that is famous for using it recently for just, I mean, it was the tool that everyone used. I, I know I used it when I was pen testing, right? It's like, oh, I can't pay for Metasploit Pro, but Cobalt Strike. And look, he showed me how to crack his own software, right? <laughs> like, uh, I think that was really cool, but it, it it also innovated in the area as well, right? And so there's a lot of lot new techniques that come from some of the things like that. And I think open sourcing technology like that is really made us be better when it comes to security as well as new techniques for you know, trying to evade detection and things. Yeah, I think jumping off of what a few of you have said, the other benefit to something being open source is the vendor that it is targeting can fix it. And like, sure, it's like it's going to take years for the Cisco updates to roll out or, you know, the Windows updates to roll out or whatever. But if it's something that NSO makes, like the goal is for it to evade detection forever. Whereas if you publish something in Metasploit, presumably the vendor that's getting targeted can see what you're doing and, and try to build a defense for it. I also think it depends on who you're targeting. And I think that that's kind of where the it gets tough. Like It's very clear that NSO stuff was being used to target human rights activists and journalists and, and stuff like that. And I think that that kind of targeting really needs to be applied to the person or the like group that's enabling it, especially because NSO is being very selective with who they sell their software to. Whereas as an open source person, like they just published it and it's like, sure, you could use it to attack a hospital. It's like, or you could use it as the person defending the hospital to identify these vulnerabilities and try to fix them. Cool. Let's move on. Uh, Norton LifeLock. So basically what happened here, there was a disclosure that Norton LifeLock has a password manager service. There was something like 6,000 customers that were notified that their accounts may have been hacked. Norton LifeLock says that this probably occurred because of credential stuffing. So basically the customers reused the password for Norton LifeLock as something else that already had a public breach. And the attack went on for a couple of weeks before Norton LifeLock's detection picked it up and said too many accounts were being logged in when they shouldn't have been. So I guess, you know, the interesting parts here is one, who uses Norton LifeLock for a password manager? <laughs> Two, these things are really hard to use. I mean, I, I set up my whole family over Christmas break and they wanted to pick terrible passwords for their password manager, which obviously adds a whole bunch of new attack service. So I think we should make this really hard. Maybe pseudo randomly generate a password. Don't let you pick one or push everyone to stronger authentication factors. Uh, but really the thing is, is I want to just get rid of passwords altogether. They're awful. Uh, there was a link in the, the article that I thought was interesting about another breach for a password manager, some enterprise password manager. And yeah, what was really interesting here was it said they pushed a bad update. They they caused the breach by pushing a bad update to the password manager itself. And that got me thinking, I mean, that a, against a popular password manager would be awful. Like one password, if it got pushed a bad breach, which then called me back to critical infrastructure. If you're running these kinds of things, then how do you make sure that these practices don't happen? I'm still stuck on, did you force your family to tell you their password manager password so you could tell them if it was good or not? Oh yeah, absolutely. 
<laughs> what, what kind of best practice are you t- showing them with that, Travis? They would have picked password three. So even me knowing their password and it being good is better than the alternative. All right, I'll take it. And did you respond with like a minimum of 12 characters and underscore at and two numbers? Like what was the criteria that you provided back? Passphrase. I love Travis 2023 exclamation mark. Yeah. Yep. Resourcely exactly. rocks one. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I get really frustrated with these things, right? Because like, just like last time when we were talking about LastPass, it's when you do security tools for end users who are already so hard to convince to do the right thing and you break their trust this way, that's just, it damages everything for everyone so much and it's it's awful and then what if what if you had a bunch of users who went from last pass two weeks ago to northern lifelock and had accidentally <laughs> chosen a bad password get credential stuff like that's just like that is just unacceptable and i understand that this this is harder to mitigate against but it isn't impossible in any way and so i i would urge any of these providers to really look at their security programs and see what are we doing what can we do better and please do better i mean if if there's going to be any sort of market segment that should be able to detect and mitigate credential stuffing, it has to be password manager. Like if you don't just intimately understand like that problem and how to control it, I mean, you should be in a different business. I mean, but to honest point on, on I think on any sort of, you know, whether it's a security product or a security feature that, t- t- that touches customers. I remember, you know, years ago when we first started testing messages to, uh, to Netflix customers, like when we detected credential stuffing or account takeover, like you have to be really, really careful about that language so that they, that you're not misunderstood and, you know, folks take the right action. It's really, really tough to sort of build security for, for uh, average users. But I mean, yeah, to the original, you know, the question about critical infrastructure, I mean, come on. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, password managers generally, that's just, uh, that's a tough business. I mean, I think it's, um, you know, you sort of need it. It's unfortunate you need it because we have, we all have 500 identities, you know, on the internet, but come on now. I mean, if you, if you're a, if you're a password manager and you can't detect credential stuff and you can't protect your folks from that, that it's just time to do something else. You'd be surprised, you know, like other companies, we push an email and we detect a new login from a new device. You'd be amazed at how many people mark that as spam. It's pretty, pretty sad. We're trying to protect you. Bam. Stop spamming me. I mean, this particular attack factor though, I just like gave me nightmares. Basically you pass, you push a bad update to a password manager. That could be so bad. That's it. I mean, that's mass compromise of the internet, probably. Yeah, but then good change management processes, like enforcement mechanisms. You, If you own critical infrastructure, you have a different set of responsibility than if you own a single page web app that I don't know what it does. But like, it's there. It, this is important. Yeah, but who doesn't have bodies buried in their CI systems? Like the, the build pipeline and all of that stuff? Like, that's some scary infrastructure there. There's always something going on. Speaking of bad updates, I, I do remember years ago, um, probably 20 years ago when I was a security consultant and um, I was helping onboard a new consultant and uh, he was getting his laptop set up, you know, with all your hacker tools and he had downloaded TCP dump. And that was the one time when TCP dump was compromised and they had actually Trojan the downloads. It can happen to everybody. I mean, who, who actually checks signatures on, on software you download from the internet? So I mean, it's... Defcon CTF where the Wireshark zero days come out. One thing I thought about this one is I wonder if Norton had anything in place similar. Like when one when you log into a new computer or whatever on one password, you need your master key in addition to your password. So in theory, even if I was reusing this on a bunch of other websites, even if someone had my password for one password, like in theory, they still should not be able to get access to my account. And that feels like the right approach for something like a password manager. Oh, to mitigate credential stuffing? Yeah. Like you, I agree with what everyone said about like, you should be able to detect this. Like you should be able to prevent this to some extent, but it's also something where it seems like they might've missed uh, the ability to just copy someone else's homework that has a very clear mitigation to this. But I think this was also highlighted in the last pass breach, right? A lot of these companies don't don't engage with the password cracking community at all. And so they're very disconnected from the people who actually have the expertise and don't seek their advice. I think one password is pretty unique in their engagement with the community broadly. To Jason's point though, if you're in this business and you're not doing that, like what are you doing? All right, well, yeah. 
Your favorite Chick-fil-A. I've been waiting so long for this one. <laughs> uh, before I get on it, I'd be remiss if I didn't say, for all those affected, someone reach out to us, let us know, did Norton LifeLock offer you free credit monitoring for a year? Of course. Access to your passwords. Every time. And, and do we think it costs them anything for that? I want to, I want to, I want a marketplace to sell extra credit monitoring, but it has it's no like, it's, it's the next ICO, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I have five crediting monitor credit monitoring services. Instead of paying LifeLock $120 a year, send me 50 bucks and I'll send you my coupon code. Uh, but yeah, on that note, best news story of this segment, uh, Chick-fil-A. I, I'll tell you the first meal I think probably I bought when I got back to Texas was Chick-fil-A. Just saying. It was too far of a drive from where I lived in Campbell to go out there regularly in California. But yeah, so Chick-fil-A sent out an email to their customers saying, uh, you know, unusual activity being reported, but they don't think anything has happened. They're investigating, but recommendation, reset your passwords. If you have payments, if you have a credit card stored, you should uh, delete it. And I think they mentioned something about 2FA. I can't remember, but I remember getting this email and being like, huh, that's odd. Didn't actually look into it until we started talking about news segments for this and realizing that one, I eat Chick-fil-A a ton, uh, which is apparent by the number of points I have, but two, uh, Chick-fil-A accounts being worth money. I, and it's, you know, I actually went through my, uh, app. Cause I don't even know if you can go through a website to, for Chick-fil-A, right? I think it's all app base and didn't even realize that you could add funds. And my only guess on that is like for kids, right? You're, you've got a child with an account, you go add funds to their account and then they can get Chick-fil-A when they're out with their friends. But yeah, Chick-fil-A stolen accounts are being sold on the black market from two to $200, depending on the account balance. So yeah, Chick-fil-A with a balance of 2000, you can get for about 200 bucks. Chick-fil-A with an account balance of 50, you could get for $7 and 50 cents, which is Kind of interesting. Didn't actually think this would be a thing, but I started thinking about like, oh, is my account potentially going to be targeted because of all all my points? Yeah, you know, all all ten thousand of them or whatever it is. But that's the gist. Yeah, hackers targeted Chick Fil A. My guess is it's probably something like credential stuffing as well. And there's probably nothing with the Chick Fil A system. I have to believe that Chick Fil A is investing in security. And if they need to see so, hit me up. I'm available. But yeah, pretty interesting to see that uh, accounts like Chick Fil A. Uh, you know, being sold on the black market, but makes sense. You know, you've got preloaded money. Someone's willing to, you know, pay money for it so that they get a bunch of Chick-fil-A for free. Jason, maybe you should unretire and take over security there. Uh, no, I, I was going to ask Will though. I think, you know, based on his, his, um, his stature on that, he, he might be victim of like SIM swapping or something like that. Just cause like the big Bitcoin folks just to go after his, his Chick-fil-A. But, but also I thought Whataburger was the Texas, um, it is. I thought that was the in and out. Of, then a Chicago uh, company bought them. And they're, you know, it, it takes 45 minutes for me to go through the drive through at Whataburger here because it's just so slow. It's awful. I I won't go. With Chick-fil-A, I can order ahead in the app. When I get to the drive through I just tell them my name. And two minutes later, I'm out. So, yeah, this, this one surprised me. When I got the email, I didn't think anything of it, didn't look into it. But then... When we started talking about news segments for this uh, podcast, I was like, dang, these these are worth a lot uh, a lot of money, I guess. But well, sacred. as an end user, have you now decided to not use them because oh, there's security support? No. No, I mean, it's, it's just like Target and any of the other companies, right? You're, or Facebook. How many times has Facebook emailed you that your password's been exposed either through an internal system or through some other means? You're still going to use Facebook. Still going to use Chick-fil-A. I'm still going to eat there. I'm trying to eat there less because I'm trying to get back into shape this year. But I am I am still banking my points because my hope one day is I get enough points where I can just buy a ton of sandwiches to donate to some homeless shelter or something. Because I actually don't ever... That's why I have so many points. I never use them. I'm just banking them for one day. I could buy like 10 sandwiches and feed 10 people or something. Or sell it on the dark web for hundreds of dollars. Yeah. See, if you could transfer <laughs> points, I'm just not willing to give up my Chick-fil-A one signature status. No. To honest point though, people do not stop using these things. So, you know, Jason made a big push for risk quant during the time of Netflix. And I looked up a bunch of numbers on how much breaches cost and why they cost. But yeah, basically, if you have a breach at a major company, your stock may take a short-term hit, but it recovers and actually ends up outperforming other companies within a short period of time. So really, like, there's no impact. Like, Customers don't decide to not shop with you because you have a breach. Nobody cares. Everyone forgets about it in three months and moves on. Any PR is good PR. But also just quickly on, on Will's comment on whether or not this was surprising. Having worked in the space that 
try to prevent against credential stuffing account takers and stuff like that. This is exactly what we see like so much of across every business and mostly it's money laundering, right? Like the place where I bought my first motorcycle after moving to the US, they accepted 10 grand in uh, Toys R Us gift cards at the time for a really nice like (laughs) Ducati Uh, because, you know, like they could, they could fix that up. And so I think it's, it's anything where you can convert real money to fake money is still an economy uh, that can be leveraged and abused. So not surprised. Yeah. I think it's important from, you know, if if I was, you know, the Chick-fil-A says, so is just making sure that folks like from a threat modeling perspective understand because yeah, I mean, to honest point, like loyalty stuff, that, that stuff's been traded, you know, underground for a while. Um, you have to understand, like, how are folks, what are they going to be interested in? I, I remember when, you know, we had issues at Netflix, like we needed to better understand, well, why are people reselling Netflix accounts? Like, what are they getting out of it? So, yeah, understanding, like, the ways that folks are going to use your product, but also abuse it or miss it. Seems pretty risky to me, though, because, like, if you buy your account, you get your dark web, dark meat sandwich, and you're, you have to go there you, and like, you're probably on some cameras or you paid to get it to delivered. And like, maybe there's just nobody who's incentivized mm. enough to like care about any of this stuff to go after you. But it just seems like really risky to be like, I wanted to buy a sandwich below cost and I'm willing to <laughs> associate my physical presence with a location and probably be catchable. You need mules. You need to send them in and go retrieve the Chick-fil-A. I would I would say on that the the point of mules very very tangentially related. But if y'all haven't seen uh, Emily the Criminal, the movie it's 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 an amazing movie. But it, it kind of shows you like real world like how credit cards get you know stolen and reused and how they get monetized. But it's a is that this movie. sequel to Emily in Paris? No, but it is, <laughs> but it is also on Netflix. There you go. All right, it's going on the list. Good plug there. All right, let's wrap with the numbers game. So the way this is going to work is I have some security stats and I'm going to pick one of you and I'm going to ask you to guess a number. That person will throw out a number and then the rest of you will debate whether the number is too high or too low. So we'll start with Jason. Jason, how many data breaches occurred in Look at Will looking at another monitor. He's cheating just like last time. Yeah, he always cheats. (laughs) (laughs) How many data breaches in 2021, Jason? How many data breaches? Uh, 17,000. Too high or too low, everyone? Too low. Too high. I'm going too high. Why? Uh, that just seems like a lot per day. And that's, that's my only fair. rationale. It's actually... My, my guess was going to be it's too... Wait, before you say, it just seems like a lot for people to actually count up. <laughs> 41, <laughs> to that much. 4145. Okay. 4145 breaches. Uh, but 22 billion records. So I believe that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I remember saying... Okay. Anna, how many Americans use password managers? Uh, how many Americans are there? Do mm, I need to give an absolute number? I think like 330, roughly. Yeah, yeah but okay. so we're going to exclude children from this, though. Children aren't going to be using password managers or not, so they're out of this. Maybe 30,000? <laughs> I would say higher. Yeah, higher. <laughs> yeah, I hope it's higher. <laughs> 30,000. I'm very like, skeptical of Americans. <laughs> like I was going to say like 1 million. Any other guesses? I'd say 4 million. Yeah, I'd say 4 or 5 because I think a lot of people get them for free from their company. That's true. According to security.org, 45 million use password managers, but nearly two-thirds are still using memorization or writing it down on notes. So much much better than the rest of you um, pessimists thought. Oh, they're they're probably considering like browser, like Safari, Chrome mm. stored passwords too. So yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, Leaf, in 2021, how much does a phishing-related breach cost a business on average? So if you have a breach that's related to phishing, how much does it cost? I feel like there's so many that just like get swept under the rug. I'm gonna go like I'm gonna go like a hundred thousand. It's too low. Say higher. Yeah. I'd say maybe one point five million. Yeah, what kind of cost are you talking about? Are you talking about like fines or like Actual labor and every to uh, total co- total cost as measured to the business. So they're going to take all okay. of this and they're yeah. going to yeah like do some write down or something. Yeah, this is re- this is reported like numbers though, so it's going to buy us higher than the actual yeah, average. That's true. I'll, maybe I'll go like five hundred thousand. That was like my original thought. Y'all are very pessimistic. Four point six five million, according to IBM. 
Well, all right. Well, uh, what kind of links are they clicking on? That's <laughs> Chick-fil-A. all the links, every single link. Your free Chick Fil A sandwich here. If you send me that, I'm clicking. I guarantee. <laughs> you so hear that? You, Attackers, I, if you want to compromise, will. <laughs> you have an anchor point. So, phishing-related breach costs 4.65 million. Will, how much does an average public co- cloud breach cost? Public cloud breach. I'd say 150 million. <laughs> average. Quite high. Yeah. It's quite so high. This is not the breach of a public cloud. This is the breach of a customer of a public cloud. Yeah, running a public cloud. Uh, I, I, yeah, that's probably too high. I'd say uh, 60 million. Going lower. Yeah, lower. 50. I'm saying 15. 5.02. Seems like too low. Yep. But I guess what's, I guess what constitutes a breach, like, oh, my, my S3 bucket with three files on it was. Or any like significant breach. So yeah, it's probably being way too. I was thinking more like Capital One breaches and those kind of. I know. I was going to say you're in hundreds by, of millions. Anchored by your previous experience. Yeah. You know, there's a company out there that's that can really help make sure you get those cloud resources deployed correctly. Sick. Take us out on a plug. <laughs> is, it because, is it because of the UI is too complicated to use? Oh yeah. Every time. All right. Good stuff. Thank you, Jason, for joining us. This is fun. Good to see you all again. Everybody, please subscribe. We love to see you every month. And thank you all. See ya. See ya. Thank you, everyone.